Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a joe, quarter joe, nipperkin, and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I work through the, I look through the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. And currently we have come to the end of this series on James Fenimore Cooper's The Leatherstocking Tales and the end of the final novel in that series, The Prairie. So thank you for bearing with me through this long series as we come to the end. In this episode, I'm just going to go through the final few chapters of The Prairie, focus on a few of the themes and the events that happen in those final chapters, and then close up with a few of my final thoughts about the Leatherstocking Tales as a whole. So, um, as I've talked about in the other episodes on the Prairie, this is the first of the Leatherstocking Tales not to be set in either, basically in New York, right? The first three Leatherstocking Tales are set in colonial New York during the periods of conflicts with the French and the Indians, particularly the, the Huron. This one, though, and then the Pioneers is set in, in early national New York in peacetime. Now, this story covers the final days of Leatherstocking as he has fled from New York and has moved on to the prairies in the west on the other side of the Mississippi. It's taking place in lands acquired by the United States in the Louisiana Purchase, and thus is, is a new frontier. And it's very clear at this point that Natty Bumpo, Leatherstocking, our, our main character in this series, is not capable of really enduring with settler society. And we that was made clear to us in The Pioneers. So he moves out to the West to really live as a frontiersman. He literally talks about in, in The Prairie that he had to leave to get away from the sound of cutting down trees. Right. And the ecological theme was so strong in the, the pioneers. It's, it's a little bit less clear in the prairie, but it's at least hinted of in the background. He's living on to the last of his days as a, as a trapper. He's, he's really too old to hunt anymore. So he just is known throughout this novel as a trapper. In fact, if you didn't read the other books in the series, you wouldn't even know, you know the connection between this character and these other, the other books. They're just hinted at through certain events he talks about. Now, in this book, he runs into a new generation of pioneers. Some of these people speak to his past, but he must again apply his skills, his knowledge, his, his ability of working with the Indians and talking with them to, to deal with new conflicts between whites and Indians. But he also has to deal with the advancing pioneer society represented by the Bush family. So in the last four episodes, I covered the events leading up to the climax of the prairie. But let me just cover it once again if, you, if you're just joining us. Although I do urge you to go back and listen to all the, all the previous episodes on the prairie, at least, if not the whole Leatherstocking Tales. I have a lot to say about this series in, the, in those episodes. But anyways, we got this bush caravan. This is a, a, large, a rather large group of, of pioneers going out to the west. They're going well beyond the place most pioneers go. I mean, in, it's set in 1805. So in... This time, you know, Ohio, Indiana is kind of the frontier still. You know, 
Wisconsin really wasn't wasn't made a state until 1848. So you can get a sense of how, you know, s- slowly the frontier was progressing. Uh, still a lot faster than people like Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson thought uh, it would advance. But they're going way into really into the far far west. This is a place where Cooper is obviously very familiar and comfortable writing about these interactions between whites and and Indians. So why they're there? That's the kind of the opening question we get. Now along the way, they run into Nettie Bumpo, who you know he's a trapper. He's very old. He's in his eighties. He guides them to a camp. He's introduced to this wide variety of characters. The leader, the patriarch of the group, is Ishmael Bush. His wife is Esther Bush. They have an adopted uh, daughter, kind of their niece, uh, named Ellen Wade, who's who's a relative of sorts. They're with Abraham White, who's Esther's brother, so Ishmael's brother-in-law. He's the villain of our tale, or one of one of the villains, anyways. We have Dr. Obadid Bat. He's a scientist who's going along with them as a doctor. He's basically the one member of this caravan who's not really related. He's interested in going to the West as a naturalist. And we're, of course, reminded of the Lewis and Clark expedition with Dr. Obadid Bat. And if you've ever read the Lewis and Clark journals or know anything about the expedition, you know that it was as much a scientific expedition as it was one of just kind of finding the way to the Pacific, right? They, Lewis and Clark, drew down pictures, they, they recorded the animal life they saw, and they, they were kind of naturalists and ethnographers and, and the whole kind of a, a, a aggregate of scientists. As they went there, an Obadad bat, not quite as diverse as that. He's really interested in taxonomy, and he's obsessed with taxonomy and, and identifying animals. And that's a point of a lot of humor in the story, particularly as these skills are not seen as particularly useful to people like Natty Bumpo, who's much more practical, doesn't, doesn't need the, to have the scientific name for everything. So one night, Nanny is talking to Ellen Wade and meets her lover, Paul Hoover, a bee hunter who is sort of hanging around the caravan, but he's not welcome because the Bush family doesn't really want Hoover to marry Ellen. They, these three are taken captive by the, the Dakota, the Sioux. The Sioux steal the Bush's horses during this and release other animals. Natty helps these captives escape by releasing uh, the Sioux horses. So they get away from their first captivity with the, with the Sioux. We learn that the Bush family is holding a strange young black haired woman and that this woman is causing conflict within the Bush family. One night while Natty, Paul and Obadet are eating buffalo together, they, they run into another strange man who appears into the story. His name is Middleton. He's a descendant of Duncan Hayward, the major character from the last of the Mohicans. In fact, he's descended from Duncan Hayward and Alice, and their son takes the name Uncas, who was the, the, the last of the Mohicans in that story. Uh, the son of Kinshingachgook, Natty Bumpo's long lost, not long lost, um, now, now long dead comrade. So he tells the story of how he married the daughter of a Spanish landlord in the Louisianas, but on his wedding night, she is taken away by Ibrahim and Ishmael Bush. There's a lot of symbolism in this. The first is kind of the handover. I mean, this is the clear symbolism. The Spanish landlord hands over his daughter and his land to Middleton. Kind of pass. This is the pa- the formal passing on of this land from the Spanish, and I guess later on from the French, but this was kind of traditionally more Spanish territory, 
from the Spanish to the Americans. But then it is, she is stolen. She is taken by Ibrahim and Ishmael Bush, the settlers. The, the greedy pioneer takes this land away from that well, this woman away from them, but it's a symbol kind of of the Louisiana itself. That, that's, I'm going to say that, that Inez is a symbol of Louisiana. Anyways, Mid Middleton then follows them to try to get back this, this woman and she ch chases her into the frontier and f eventually finds, finds them. But first she, he runs into Natty Bumpo and he's going to kind of recruit their help in getting back Inez. So while this is, all of this is all going on, the Bush family has to bury Asa, the eldest son. He was shot to death. Now, they originally assumed that the Sioux did this, but they find that the bullet that killed him was labeled with the mark of the trapper, Natty Bumpo. The trapper and his companions uh, eventually go into the camp and confront Ellen, who's kind of guarding the, the camp from these intruders, one of which is her, her lover, but she's able to very bravely kind of hold them off for a while. But eventually they're able to steal off Inez and Ellen Wade goes with them. So the group now is, is Paul Hoover, Ellen Wade, Natty Bumpo, Middleton, and Obed, Obed is with them too. And they flee off, but they're not sure where to go. Their main plan is to kind of meet up with Middleton's troops who are kind of out there somewhere. But it's a long ways to go, and they'll have to get through Sioux territory to get there. But along the way, they run into a Pawnee chief, later revealed to be the be named Hardheart, a very powerful Pawnee warrior who has caused a lot of uh, trauma to the Sioux with his raids and his, his battles with them. He welcomes them to Pawnee land, kind of safe passage there. But again, they're still going to have to go through Sioux land to get there. So either path will be dangerous. Well, they make their way through Sioux territory and they eventually encounter a brush fire that was begun by the Sioux to kind of root them out. They're able to survive the fire using Nandy's knowledge. He actually creates a, a fire around him, which takes away the fuel. So the fire dies near them. This is a kind of an old firefighting tactic. They survive this and they keep going on their way and they find some like charred bones and they find like a dead bison and they kind of under the dead bison they find an Indian and this is none other than Hardheart and he, he kind of hid under an animal to survive the fire. So he eventually begins to lead them into Pawnee territory and there's a long chase and, and but eventually they, they're captured by the Sioux. The Sioux prepare to execute Hardheart but what kind of there's some kind of drama that puts an end to this, or at least prolongs Hardheart's life. The Sioux chief wants to take both the women, Inez and Ellen, as his, as his wives and make them sort of sister wives. But his wife protests, and he has, she has this very dramatic protest where she refuses to move, and she takes off the ornamentation that she's been given by the chief. Um, now, Middleton also lodges a formal protest, and this part of the novel is a lot of things we saw in The Last of the Mohicans, which are these long speeches given to Indian leaders, trying to convince them of one opinion or another. Um, a lot of drama set in the context of these long speeches. So Middleton gives a speech, the chief's wife gives a speech, and eventually this distraction prevents the execution from going forward. And that, that's where I sort of left off, and this allows us to kind of come to the, the climax of the prairie. 
So we're back to the torture scene. There was this earlier delay about this kind of fighting over the women. This fighting doesn't really end at this point. Natty actually steps up and tries to make and tries to protect Ellen from becoming Mahotri, who's the suit chief's the suit chief tries tries to prevent her from becoming his wife as well. So we get another speech. He eventually has to go to Ishmael Bush and tell him the truth, tell him that you're, you're not likely to get your niece back. He says, quote, the Tetan chief has spoken very plainly. He will not give you the lady to whom your Lord in heaven. He knows you have no claim unless it be as such to a wolf has to his lamb. He will not give you the child you call your niece. And there, and I acknowledge that I am far from certain he has the same justice on his side. Moreover, neighborhood squatter, he flatly denies your demand for me, miserable and worthless that I am. Nor do I think he has been unwise in so doing, seeing that I should have many reasons against journeying far in your company. But he makes you an offer which is, it is right and convenient you should know. The Titan says through me, who I am no more than a mouthpiece, and therein not answerable for the sins of the world. But he says that as this good woman is getting past the comely age, it is reasonable for you to tire of such a wife. He therefore tells you to turn her out of your lodge, and when it's empty, he will send his own favorite, or rather, she that was his favorite, the skipping fawn, as the Sioux's call her, to fill her place. You see, neighbor, through the redskin is minded to keep your property, he's willing to give you wherewithal to make yourself some return, end quote. This is, this is sort of the peace offering that the Sioux chief give to the Bush family. Now, the, the Bush were sort of allied with them against Natty's group uh, earlier in the tale, but that, that kind of got broken up with the, the kidnapping and the refusal to give the women up. But this proposal is kind of interesting. One is Mahotri, the Sioux chief, wants to get rid of Skipping Fawn. This was the wife who protested earlier on, uh, the taking in these new wives. But he notice he, he wants to kind of do this this trade the swapping of wives as a way to make make peace with him and he sees he's getting an upgrade of course now the torture scene is long and dragged out it actually takes over several chapters of preparing it and talking about it um, for instance quote with the refinement and cruelty that none but an indian would have imagined the place selected for this grave deliberation was immediately about the post to which the most important of its subjects was attached middleton and paul were brought in on their bonds and laid at the feet of the pawnee and then the men came to take their place according to their several claims to distinction as warrior after warrior approached he seated himself in a wide circle with the mean as composed and thoughtful as if his mind were actually in a condition to deal with justice tempered as it should be with the quality, the heavenly quality of mercy. A place was reserved for three or four of the principal chiefs and the few of the oldest of the women as withered as age, exposure, hardship, and lives of savage passion could make them. Thrust themselves into the foremost circle with a temerity to which they were impelled by their insatiable desire for cruelty and to which nothing but their years and their long, tired fidelity to the nation would have excused. This is just a ta taste of these long descriptions we get as this torture scene is set up it we don't really get it uh, there's a lot of talk of torture in these novels uh, it's not really till the Deerslayer that we get a full description of a torture scene and it's it's natty who's the the victim of that well then arrives an elder sioux warrior named la blafaire la la Blafair. i guess this means the scarred man but this is this is kind of someone who's he's not a chief but he's got such respect in the community that even the chief madri has to kind of uh, give him some respect and, and give him the floor when he wants it. 
So we get even more ceremony as the chief welcomes this aged warrior and gives him all the necessary respect. And all of this is kind of building up the tension towards the great torture scene. Abedid and Nadi even have a talk about death and, and Obedid seems to be prepared for it. I, I compared this character before to the character in Last of the Mohicans, David Gamet, both of whom are sort of fish out of water in the frontier and don't really have skills that apply them very well, but they come to be useful members of, of the companions through various ways. And interestingly, both of them come to face the possibility of torture and death at the hands of Indians. David Gamet, by posing as Uncas, allows Uncas to escape. Um, but he's, he's, he's let go eventually. But, he, you know, there was a chance he was going to be killed for his deception. And Obeded, in the same way, is coming to face his death. And he actually has a pretty honest conversation with Natty about the possibility of death. Natty helps him out, gives him some perspective on this. And it's really clear that he's won some respect for, for the naturalist. He does say, though, he thinks they might let you go just because you're not that important. You're not that much of a warrior. Now, there, there's a lot of talking about the about Laba Fair, and you know he, he gives these long speeches, and what, the conclusion of his speeches is basically he wants to take Hardheart as his own son. He wants to adopt him, although he's a Pawnee. And the tribe is going to basically have to listen to him if that's what he wants, and they're going to miss out on, on the torture. It essentially gives him a chance to save his life. Now, Hardheart does not take this. He rather die. He says he'd rather die as a Pawnee than to to live as a Sioux. So he turns his back on this offer, but it's made. We had a very similar scene in the Deerslayer, and that, that was of course written after this novel. But it's it's a similar story in that the tribe, in that case, it's the Huron. They want Natty Bumpo to kind of join them, and he. They offer him basically membership sort of in the tribe, and they do this through giving him a wife to marry. Actually, he, I think it was Nandy's first man he killed was this Huron warrior, and his wife was mourning, and the, the offer is that you marry her, and you take the place of this man you killed, and then you can kind of be part of the tribe, and we don't have to torture you. Now, Natty rejects that kind of for similar reasons, saying, I can only be a white man, and there's this really racial identity throughout these Leatherstocking tales in which, although he's raised by Indians, he lives on the frontier, his best friends were Indians. When it comes to family, he never can cross over and, and become an Indian. There, there's, that's like a line he will not cross. He won't marry an Indian woman, and he won't... even though Sometimes he recommends other people to marry Indian women, but he'll never do it. Um, and he's always got his principles for, for doing that. And I analyzed the morality of that decision in my series on the Deerslayer. So anyways, Hardheart refuses to die as Sue. And before the torture can begin, though, an Indian gets angry and throws a weapon at Hardheart. Hardheart picks it, you know, misses, he picks it up and grabs it, and then he kills that Indian, and he runs off escaping. Now, we got, again, a very similar scene in the Deerslayer. In that scene, an, an Indian gets upset at Natty, throws a hatchet at him, throws a tomahawk at him. Natty catches it, then turns around, is able to throw it back and kill that Indian and, and escape, and he's recaptured. Uh, at, before he can get too far. Here, Hardheart's able to get away, and because Pawnee warriors arrive, that essentially saves the day for him, so he's able to get away. So in this general chaos comes the, of the scene, Natty's able to free the other whites. They do not get far, though, before they're recaptured by the Bush family, who have their own issues to deal with them. They have Inez, who 
they think is on. We haven't really heard much from Inez. She's just sort of been in there, but you know, she's not been on stage too much in this part of the novel, which I think is a bit unfortunate. She's almost like a symbol, it seems to me. But anyways, they, they want to, of course, take her back. They don't want Ellen and Paul to marry, so they want to break them up. And then, of course, they got they believe that Nanny killed Asa, their eldest son. So they have issues they need to deal with them. So the Bush family is able to capture them. The threat, though, was pretty real. This all happens at the very end of, I, I don't know what chapter it is, maybe chapter 30 or so. They're all taken in by the Bush family. But right at the end of that chapter, before they're able to get away, Mahotri actually orders all the prisoners to be executed and the men are off fighting the Pawnees. So he gives this order to the women, to the women of the tribe to do this. And I just quoted not long ago, a passage where we, where Cooper identifies how bloodthirsty and vengeful and nasty these women uh, could be. And we get this very, very creepy scene. It, uh, Quote, each one of the crones as she received the weapon commenced a slow and measured but ungainly step around the savage until the whole were circling him in a sort of magic dance. Their movements were timed in some degree by the words of their song, as were their gestures by their ideas. When they spoke of their own losses, they tossed their long straight locks of gray into the air, suffered them to fall in confusion upon their withered rocks. But as the sweetness of returning blow for blow was touched upon any among them, it was answered by a common hollow as well as by the gestures that were sufficiently expressive of the manner in which they were exciting themselves to a necessary state of fury. In the very center of this ring of seething demons, the trapper now stalked with the same calmness and observation as if he would have walked into a village church. No one change was made by his appearance. Then the renewal of the threatening gestures, which if possible were still less equivocal display of the remorseless intention. Making a sign for them to see, the old man demanded, why do the mothers of the Tetons sing with bitter tongues? The Pawnee prisoners are not yet in their villages. Their young men have not come back loaded with their scalps. And it doesn't, they don't respond to this. They just keep circling him and circling him and preparing to, to, to kill him. But eventually they, they are able to slip away and they get into the hands of the Bush family. So this is followed, no, that was chapter 29. So in chapter 30, we get the climactic battle between the Pawnee and the Sioux. And a lot happens. It's just a battle scene. But Mahotri dies in this battle. But the Sioux are really have the advantage and they're about to win. But then Ishmael kind of betrays his former allies, the, the Sioux, turns his weapons on them, starts shooting some of the Sioux. This turns the tide of battle against them. And in the end, the Sioux are totally destroyed. And we're given a, a nice little side story at the end of this chapter in which Cooper talks about a Sioux warrior called Swooping Eagle. And his, essentially his last day. So that's that's the climactic battle. Uh, and now we only need to resolve a few final plot elements with the, basically the Indians out of the picture. Not really that important at this anymore, at least as far as the main plot's concerned. There's, this, is, there's, this is really interesting though, because Ishmael Bush, the squatter, the criminal... The guy who's fleeing Kentucky as a criminal and a kidnapper, and now he's living his life as a squatter on federal lands and Indian lands in part two. He's kind of squatting on both, depending on your point of view. So, but he creates a court because, you know, he's kind of the most respected. He's the elder member, except for Natty, but Natty is the defendant. So there's an irony here that his old knowledge of, about his own lawlessness 
but you know finally there's but there's no legal machinery here it's it's a pure frontier uh, and the Indians have been routed, so we can't resort to Indian justice, which we just saw on full, but that was disrupted. So the only legal machinery left is what they can put together. And so Ishmael takes the position of authority. And Cooper even tells us that this is rather silly. He says, there was something elevating in the position of a possession of authority, however it might be abused. The mind is apt to make some effort to prove the fitness between its qualities and the condition of its owner, though it may often fail and render it ridiculous which was only hatred before. But the effort on Ishmael Bush was not so disheartening. Grave in exterior, sad, sad, saturnine by temperament, formable in his physical means, and dangerous from his lawless obstetricity, his self-constituted tribunal excited a degree of awe to which even the excellent Middleton could not bring himself to be entirely insensible. And then later on, the trapper actually talks about the lack of law here. And this is something that's always obsessing him, especially ever since the pioneers. Natty's been obsessed with this arrival of law. Quote, a busy and troublesome arm. It often proves to be here in this land of America, where, as they say, man is left generally to the following of his own wishes compared to other countries. And happier I, and more manly and more honest, too, is he for the privilege. Why do you know, my men, that there are regions where the law is so busy as to say, in this fashion shall you live, and in this fashion shall you die, and in such another fashion shall you take leave of the world and be sent before the judgment seat of the Lord? End quote. Talking about the arrival of law and how that's really going to change the character of, of the frontier, and in, in a sense, a change in the character of America when it comes down to it. And that, that's kind of the lesson of the pioneers, I think. Now, Natty, they, they have this long trial and everyone gets their say and and Ishmael comes off as the great arbiter. Natty is kept as a prisoner. He's going to be charged with the murder of Asa. I think Inez is, Inez and Middleton are let to go to marry. So that plot line is resolved and basically they grant them that. So they let Inez go. There's, there's a little, they're a little more hesitant, or Ishmael's a little more hesitant to give uh, Paul Hoover Ellen because they see, they kind of see themselves as Ellen's protector. But eventually, they allow that as well. And I, I, there's even a, they both stand up and say, like, you really can't get in the way of, of the matters of the heart or whatever. So they're allowed. But the one who's kept as a prisoner is Natty, because they still think he murdered Nasa, Asa, their son. But Natty's able to give kind of eyewitness testimony that it was actually Abram who who killed Asa and he's able to give all the details about how this was done and how Natty was was framed. Abraham protests this but you know he in in so many words has to come to terms with the fact that he is guilty. So now they again they don't have these legal mechanisms they don't have a a jail they can put him into or they don't have a, a, a sheriff who can perform an execution so they need to figure out how are they going to deal with Abraham for the murder of Asa Esther agrees even though that he's his brother that he must die for his crime and they arrange but they don't really want to execute him straight up just like they don't want to put a bolt in his head so they arrange a rather strange method of execution in which they they kind of put him out on a on a thin ledge where there's a tree and they tie a noose to the tree and they kind of leave him there and they give him like a bible verse to ponder in his last moments now he can't escape if he takes a step he's going to hang himself you know if he stays there long enough i guess he would starve to death but 
it's probably not going to come to that. So basically, when he jumps and he finally gives up, he's going to die. But he'll be killing himself is, is how they sort of justify this. And he indeed does. He does that off screen and they sort of just hear hear him scream out or something. So that that ends the the life of our villain, um, Abraham. The Whites head off together with Middleton's soldiers. They will return to civilization. They'll bring with them the Bush family. Natty, so they're kind of returning to civilization and returning to law. Natty, however, wants to stay behind. The others, especially I think it's Middleton and maybe Paul Hoover, offer to help him retire in style. I think maybe it's Middleton who makes the best. He says, well, why don't you just come back and retire? You'll have a nice house. You can live in comfort in your final days. But he rejects their offer. He wants to live as a pioneer to his final days. There's really nothing for him in civilization. And he says as much. He says, Settlements, boy. It's a long since I took my leave of the waste and wickedness of the settlements in the village. If I live in a clearing, here is, here is the one of the Lord's making. And I had no hard thoughts on the matter, but never again shall I be seen running willfully into the dangers of immoralities. So that's his, his final statement against civilization. He does ask for a few favors. He asks for a, a new dog. Because Hector, his dog, is really old. I haven't talked much about Hector, but he's got this old dog with him. Throughout this novel, he asked for a, another dog because Hector's not going to last that long. He also asked for some help in buying some trade goods. I think he wants some traps or something. He has some skins he can offer up for payment. And he says, just deliver them to the Pawnee. That's where I'll be staying. And this leads us to the final chapter of the prayer and the final chapter of the Leatherstocking Tales, where we finally get to see the death of, of Nanny Bumpo. He doesn't die a violent death. He doesn't die in battle or in some conflict. He survives all his adventures. And he just comes to kind of a, he just dies of old age, which I think is fitting for this character. He's faced death bravely so many times, it would be a shame for him to end up dying a violent death. Um... He gets to die essentially surrounded by by friends and I don't know why I say loved ones, but people that respect him anyways. Um, he returns to stay with the Pawnee and that's kind of where he lived off his last days with the Pawnee. And this this creates some kind of nice circle to his life, having been raised by the Delaware initially. He enters life with the Delaware and now he's going to leave life with the Pawnee. And, and I've talked before how... Cooper seems to associate both the Delaware and the Pawnee as the good guys in their respective settings, while the Sioux and the Huron and the Iroquois are the bad guys in, in their settings. He even finally gets a son, which is really nice. He adopts Hardheart as his, as his son. Um, of course, he never married. He never had a son of his own. So he finally gets to have a son in the character of Hardheart. You know, before he had this adopted brother, Chingachgook, and now he has this adopted son. So there's some nice closure to the character and we get you know we feel he's in a happy place in his final days middleton and paul hoover visit sometime later to check up on him and this happens to be the the day he's dying the pawnee honor him and so we get this death scene in which kind of the, all the pawnee are there la bluffer that sue that sue warrior the really old one he's brought in by the pawnee he's captured he didn't die in the battle He's in the final pages of the story. He gives his own eulogy to, to Natty saying, A valiant, a just, and a wise warrior has gone on this path, which will lead him to the blessed grounds of his people. When the voice of Wakanda called him, he was ready to answer. Go, my children, remember that the just chiefs of the pale faces and clear your own tracks from briars. 
The final sentence, final paragraph of the story says this about Natty. The grave was made beneath the shade of some noble oaks. It had been carefully watched to the present hour by the Pawnees of the Loop and is often shown to the traveler and, his tr and the tra tra trader as a spot where a just white man sleeps. In due time, the stone was placed on its head with the simple inscription which the trapper himself requested. The only liberty taken by Middleton was to add, May no wanton hand ever disturb his remains. So the addition here is that it doesn't want to be disturbed by progress. And we know the future of this land, that it will become... The prairie will be transformed into corn and wheat for miles and miles. The, this entire ecosystem is going to be devastated. The native species are going to be eradicated. And yeah, it's not entirely gone, but by and large, the prairie has been transformed into, into commodities of, of production. And that's, that's before Cooper's time. Cooper wouldn't have lived to see all this process unfold, but he certainly saw it coming. And the story of the pioneers in the prairie really is, in many ways, the story of the advancing of American civilization. And... With it, its destructive characteristics. So we don't want we want to believe that Natty's grave remains undisturbed, but we know the truth that some farmer is going to buy this land, and and that's going to be it for and Natty's going to be forgotten. As as in many ways the the Americans of the time saw thought the Indians would be forgotten. I've dealt with that before in this series. That as much as Cooper thought the Indians were a dying race and and leaving. America, kind of like Tolkien's elves, leaving the shores of Middle Earth, or in the you know being eradicated actually. And Cooper is pretty honest about the violence involved in this in this reduction to the last Indian. But you know it never happens, right? The Indians endured, and they're you know yeah they had to survive, face all sorts of challenges, but there there are certain the, the, these communities have survived. And this is the main problem with this kind of the last Indian narrative is it denies that these communities have have survived these great traumas that white civilization has imposed on them. In some of his final words, Natty does talk about some of the themes of, of these of these novels, especially the prairies and the pioneers. Middleton asked, you know, do you, do you want to be buried by your father? He said, no, not so, not so, Captain. Let me sleep where I've lived, beyond the din of the settlements. Still, I see no, I see no need why the grave of an honest man should be hid like a redskin in his ambushment. I paid a man in the settlement to make and put a gravestone on the head of my father's resting place. It was a value of 12 beaver skins, and cunningly and curiously was it carved. Then it told all comers that the body of such a Christian lay beneath, and it spoke of his manners of life and his years of in his modesty. We had done... We ha when we had done with the Frenchers in the old war, I made a journey to that spot in order to see all was rightly performed and glad to say that the workman had not forgotten his faith. Aye, no, no, I have no son but hard heart, and it is little that an Indian knows of white fashions and usages. Besides, I am his debtor already, seeing it's so little I have done since I have lived in this tribe. The rife might bring the value of such a thing, but then I know that I will give the boy pleasure to hang a piece in his hall. For so many is the deer and the bird that he has seen it destroy. No, no, the gun must be sent to him whose name is graven on the lock. So a lot there. Um, essentially, he's saying, I am now of the Pawnee and Hardheart is my son and it's his responsibility to bear me. And he passes his gun, kill deer, his rifle to to Hardheart, not not giving it to to the whites. And 
we have now the whole story of, of Kildeer. Kildeer was actually um, Hutter's gun all the way back in the Deerslayer. You got it. Then we get that backstory when, when Cooper finally writes that novel 15 years later or so. But this was actually from a pirate. Um, so I guess that, that basically does it for for the Leatherstocking Tales, the Prairie and the Leatherstocking Tales. I don't really know what more to to add about this story. I, I don't want to... This is not one of my favorite of the Leatherstocking Tales. And I, I think a lot of that, though, has to do with the fatigue. I've, I've kind of read these five novels back to back, and I don't know if I'd recommend anyone doing that. I, I think it's a hard... It's a chore to get through them back to back. Cooper... You know, maybe if you're used to reading 19th century literature, it's another thing. But if you, if you kind of grew up on 20th century literature, this stuff is really, the prose is very thick and the action's very slow and it takes a while to get through. And, and it does become a bit of a chore after a while. And this is one of the reasons I, I know I promised to do Red Rover in the pilot after this, but I don't know if I have it in me right now. So I think I need to get back to the 20th century. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back and I'm recording these in early February. So I think I'm going to do some black writers. They won't actually be posted probably till March, but you're going to be recording them in, in February. And I'm going to look at uh, some black writers, but I'll, I'll say more about that at the end of this episode. I guess my final thoughts are as hard as they can be to get through. I think these are novels that deserve to be read a bit more. And I think they have a lot to say to us now and maybe even more than what they had to say to people at their time. I think particularly with the ecological narrative, we, we don't often think of writers of 19th century America as being overly concerned with, with ecology. Um, but Cooper seems to be a real exception to this. And he has a very, very contemporary point of view about overuse of waste, of abuse of land, of abuse of natural resources, and, and even sustainability. Now, Natty is, I guess, the model we're given of sustainability, particularly in, in the prairie, but there's other characters, too, that, that reflect this to a degree. Maybe Chingachgook. Um, I think to a degree, maybe the Hutter girls might have a bit of this. Not so much uh, Judith Hutter, but uh, Hetty Hutter. Perhaps, but really, he stands off in these tales as a, as a unique example of a character who embraces sustainability consciously. And you know, maybe the Indians in general are given that, but the Indians are—it's such a complex conversation to talk about them. I don't want to say anything definitive about them. But clearly, Natty is is the image of sustainability here, and I think that's an important figure we need to come back to as we consider our own use of nature and what and come to terms with i mean in the sense we've talked so much about the genocide of indians in these in these tales the genocide of nature and genocide is the wrong term of course but the the devastation of of american nature throughout the front, advancing frontier settler society is something we need to come to terms with whole ecosystems were transformed into farmland for instance, species were driven to extinction. And this story was again told again and again. Mountains were leveled for mining communities. And this is not something that can be restored. You know, Humpty Dumpty can't be put to, back together again. And yeah, there's still nature, but it, it's kind of like how I keep saying that 
there wasn't a last Indian because the Indians endured. But like nature, they, they were changed. And Natty's respect for nature parallels his respect for Indian customs and ways of life. And he doesn't really want to step on those either. Even when it comes to his enemies, he doesn't want to say that the heroine are doing it wrong. He'll say they're deceitful. He'll say bad things about them, certainly, and, and with the Sioux. But he doesn't want to say that they're they're wrong. Or, you know, he always talked, especially in like the Deerslayer and the Pathfinder, about the gifts that people have. And that's something that comes from nature. It's something that comes from training and upbringing and, and environment. But it's something very unique and precious and that seems to be lost. And he talks about that less in the pioneers and the prairies because I, I think the importance of gifts falls away with the advance of civilization. It gets replaced with things like the law and the institutions and policing and, and all these things that he faces in, in the pioneers particularly. All right, so just, well, the deer slayer. Let's start with the deer slayer. The deer slayer is a really great adventure tale, I think. It's a wonderful story. It's philosophically very, very rich, particularly in the conversations between Chinkachkuk and, and Natty over religion. As he was here, we get kind of the best description of Natty's religious views and his some even some of his racial views. We have in that story some very interesting and maybe the best, best most well-developed and interesting female characters in the Leatherstocking Tales, particularly with Judith Hutter. Even kind of the white villains of the tale, Thomas Hutter and Hurry Harry, are very interesting figures. And they have their principles and their beliefs and their backstory, especially Thomas Hutter has a very interesting backstory. And... You get this very, that's powerful because you have this very tragic ending. One in that, I mean, the Huron are presented as a very tragic figure in the, in the story. But especially Judith Hutter, who essentially becomes a prostitute at the end. That, that's kind of a, a very, it's something I, you know, when you read the other Leather Striking Tales, it's kind of coming back at it as kind of surprising that, that Cooper went there because he has you know, a lot of happy endings for female characters here, with the exception of Cora and Judith. Pretty much all the women end up fairly happy, all white women anyways. Um, but I, I really like the Deerslayer, and maybe I was reading it when I was still fresh uh, in my journey through the Leatherstocking Tales, but, you know, I have a lot of fun memories of reading the Deerslayer. The Last of the Mohicans is a more straight-up adventure tale, obviously. I think what really stands out for me in The Last of the Mohicans are, are two things. One is it's really great villain. Makwa is one of the great villains of American literature. And I'll, I'll, I said it before and I'll, I still stand by that. This is, he has such a rich backstory and you really sympathize with him. You understand him. And he's a, a villain that is complex and he fits the archetype of the great villain in that, that you know, he's a foil for the hero that he, he kind of reflects the dark side of the hero in a lot of ways, that he has a rich backstory, that he sees himself as the hero of, this, of the tale. The, the things that we understand, we see when we know this is a great hero. Um, Makwa really does have that. 
we have a very interesting, I guess there's three things I want to say about Last of the Mohicans. The second is that it gets into racial politics more so than any others. The, the pioneer has slavery in the backdrop, but it doesn't get into race nearly as much as Last of the Mohicans does through the character of Cora. And we have this biracial woman who's living as a white woman, but she has African-American blood a few generations back. And race becomes an issue in that character's development and she's contrasted with her half-sister who doesn't have that african-american heritage and there's that connection to the west indies uh, which which makes for an interesting subplot in that story and then the final thing i like to say about the last of mohicans is how cooper plays with costumes and even magic at the end when natty takes this bear costume from this Indian shaman and he uses it and it gets kind of funky and weird at the end with all this kind of different costumes going on. I think that is a really something that stands out in that story. He doesn't do it in any of the other stories in quite this way. There's a few moments in the Pathfinder where you have costumes, but it, it really gets kind of bizarre at the end. And I think that's something that really it was missing from the, the filmed version of, of the story. Okay, the Pathfinder, what really stands out in the Pathfinder, obviously, is Natty's arc. It's, it's one of the stories that really has a clear arc for Natty. He starts out the tale thinking he's going to escort this woman who's going to marry. It's uh, the daughter of his good friend, and he's planning this, and he loves her, and he falls deeper in love with her throughout the course of the story. And then he finds out that, first, she doesn't really want him, and second that she's in love with someone else. She's in love with her, his friend, his younger friend, Oliver Edwards. Not all. Sorry, Oliver Edwards is from the Pioneers. It's like Jasper, Jasper Freshwater and Mabel. That's the woman's name. So his surrender of his, his deepest wishes for himself to, to get married. And he, he, he's already like reaching middle age by that point in his life. And it's too late for him to kind of go back and ever get married. So he kind of commits himself to bachelorhood. And he realizes that he can't be he can't be part of the future of America. I think that's the first evidence we have that he's gonna be a throwback. And Mabel, she's gonna be she becomes she goes to New York and becomes a merchant's wife. I would say, right? So she's already gonna be part of civilization and he's gonna be part of the frontier and he's gonna be the last of his type. I mean, it really sets him up to be the last frontiersman. That's what's not. That's one nice thing about the Pathfinder. I really also like the conflict, the the dynamics between the freshwater and the the, the saltwater sailors, um, and the, the the conversations that we have articulating the role of the Scottish in the British Empire at this time. Scotland had just been incorporated into the United Kingdom, and there was still some hostility and animosity about that because there was still Stuart heirs out there and people a lot of scots still thought that the Stuarts should you know be the kings of scotland and not have a joint monarchy with with england and that tension is explored there i think we have a fairly good couple villains here too the the quartermaster the scottish quartermaster and also the indian villain arrowhead they're both fairly well developed not nearly as sharp as makwa but they, they do stand out. And then I think the other thing we have in the Pathfinder is this great shooting contest. There, there are sort of shooting contests of sorts in the other stories. Not, not in the prairie, sadly, but the rest have a type of shooting contest. But the Pathfinder has the great 
shooting contest, the formal one, and even the the classic cliche of someone thinks they miss or everyone thinks someone missed, but when they look closer, the bullet actually went to the same hole as the previous shot. That stuff. Um, I think it's Mike Fink, right? Mike Fink is the tall tale that has the same, uh, or maybe it was Davy Crockett. It was one of those guys uh, who, who does the same trick. Um, so a lot to like in the Pathfinder. And then the Pioneers. The Pioneers is my favorite of these stories simply because it speaks so much to environmentalism and the importance of ecology and sustainability and this kind of original sin of the American frontier, which, which is the, the eradication of, of, well, there's a couple, but the eradication of the Indians and the eradication of, of nature are, I guess, these original sins. And you know, at the same time that the law is being established, that's the story of the pioneers. At the same time that the law and the institutions of the frontier are being established, it's doing so at the expense of, of everything that was there before. The people that lived there before and the living things that were there before. I, I know it's highlighted in a couple scenes, the pigeon scene and the, and, the, and the fishing scene, but it actually runs through the entire story in various ways. And Natty's courtroom defense of himself, where he's such a fish out of water. So often he's been in command. And when you read these other tales, he's always in command of his domain. He, he knows where he is. He knows the rules. He knows the languages. But the minute he's in a courtroom, he's completely lost and you can only make like a moral claim which doesn't get him very far there um, the subplot about who owns the land I guess for me is a little bit less interesting but the the story of of Natty facing the advancing pioneer society is really powerful to me and from that's why I think it's it's my favorite of these leather stocking tales and then the prairie I guess it gives us this new setting it's I guess, I don't know. I, is it my least favorite? It, it might be my least favorite. But again, that might just be because of my fatigue with with these stories. In a way, although we have a new setting, he doesn't have anything new to say. He's just saying, hey, I'm still fleeing everything from the pioneers. And then in the relations with the Indians, it's just a rehashing in many ways the Delaware and, and the, 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 the Mingo stuff from the other novels so that doesn't seem as very fresh the narrative itself of just kind of escorting people to safety um, helping young lovers get together that's he did before too so there's not that much new here um, and that way maybe if you just read one of these you can kind of read the pioneers you can kind of get the whole package you get sort of everything in in this one so that might be one reason you might want to read it but for me it's just it doesn't ring as as true i do like the character of obadid bat though i i really much like what he does with that character and how he plays off natty throughout the novel and it's a lot of fun it, it, it's kind of a symbol of the advancing scientific culture i wish he had done more with the character of inez who i do think is offered up as a symbol of louisiana the fact that she's handed over to the american military symbolically by her father letting her marry Middleton and then having her stolen away by the pioneers. The whole story is kind of bizarre and it's never really fully explained as I can tell why they took this person, you know, just that she's young and pretty. They kidnap her. It's, it's you know, what are you going to do with her when you kidnap her? It's, you know, it's, it's all kind of weird. 
but it works symbolically. It's the, the, the pioneers stealing this, this land for themselves, taking it. And we're constantly reminded that this man is a squatter. Anyway, so if I had to, to rank these, it'd be, I guess, the pioneers, the pathfinder, the deer slayer, last of the Mohicans, and the prairie. But I suppose if I reread these later on, I might rank them a bit differently. So um, that's just my my attempt. So I think that's going to do it for Cooper for now. Again, I know I promised to look at the Sea Tales, the Red Rover, and the Pilot, and you know I, I sort of regret doing that because the Pilot's just about um, the American Revolution, so maybe not as interesting. But Red Rover is one of the first works of American literature to have a major black protagonist character. So, but I just don't have it in me to do another couple of Cooper stories right now. So I'll, I'll come back and I'll look at that, those details along with maybe the new volume of his American Revolutionary stories in some later series. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to turn of the century black writers. I've already done a series on some novels of the Harlem Renaissance. I looked at nine novels. They were published in two Library of America volumes. And I, and that really, that, that I had a lot of fun with and I really enjoyed those. And being that it's February, I'm going to, when I'm, you know, preparing these anyways, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read, kind of pick up some other loose ends by looking at the authors that have full volumes dedicated to them, but were active in the period of the Harlem Renaissance. So it's going to be three authors in particular I'm going to look at. And I don't quite know the order I'm going to take them in yet. But it's going to be Charles Waddell Chestnut, who is famous. He's kind of an early generation of, he's kind of pre-Harlem Renaissance writer. He was seen by Harlem Renaissance writers to be a little bit old-fashioned, especially in, he kind of embraces a lot of cliches. But he deals with issues that the Harlem Renaissance was fascinated with, such as passing and the color line. Um, and I think he's really interesting in looking at the ramifications of Reconstruction in the Civil War and that generation of, of black people coming out of slavery, the ones who had one foot in slavery and one foot in freedom. So that's what I'll do with them. Then I'll look at uh, the volume of W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois, I always make that mistake. Um, it's, it's Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois. And this will let me step away from novels and literature for a while and look at some nonfiction writing. Uh, I'll briefly go over his PhD dissertation, The Abolition of the Slave Trade, then get into The Souls of Black Folk, and then his autobiography, and then some of his other assorted essays and things from the crisis and other, other places. So we'll look at Du Bois, and then it'll be um, Johnson. What's his first name again? James Weldon Johnson, who wrote the Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man, which is also about the color line. And there's a few other works of his there. And, I, and I'll do those three. I, I won't do Zora Neale Hurston because I kind of see her more as a, a writer of the Great Depression era or like the post-Harlem Renaissance period. So I'll eventually get to her, but uh, I'll just do those three writers for now. And then I'll, I'll decide what to do after that. So that's what's coming up in this series. So again, I apologize for not sticking to it and looking at the last two of Cooper's tales, but you know, they're, you know, whatever you'll get them eventually. 
So as always, thank you so much for listening to this uh, to this podcast and particularly listening to the series on James Fenimore Cooper. If you have any final thoughts about James Fenimore Cooper, please leave them below or, or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll be back shortly with, I believe, it'll, it'll be Charles Waldell, Waldell uh, sorry, Charles Chestnut, Charles W. Chestnut and uh, the Conjure Woman. So thanks again for listening. Here's good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel, half barrel gallon, half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a jill, quarter jill, never get another round bowl. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the landlord daughter barrel.